Well, I would invite you to turn in our church Bibles to page 831, which when you do that, you'll find the text where, which was just uh, read for us. Page 831, chapter 2 of Philippians, beginning in verse 6. And so if you would, please, let's bow together as I, as I pray. Our gracious God and Father, these are astonishing words that we are compelled to consider this Christmas Eve. They're your words, God, about your Son. Therefore, may we be helped as much as your Spirit would be pleased to work this evening so we might listen to you speak through your word taught. And so we might consider what we must consider and decide the way we ought to decide to bow our wills to your truth, to obey and humble ourselves before you, and to be honestly overwhelmed at Christ's amazing love for sinners. Therefore, Father, since the best of men are men at best, please be pleased to help us accomplish your purposes by your mighty power for your glory alone this Christmas Eve night. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Everyone would like to feel good and to live comfortably all the time. So whether it's a very active life in the city or a quiet life in the country or both, as many are able to do both now, everyone would like to feel good and live comfortably all the time. And of course, there's whole industries, including religious industries, whose whole aim is to sell us products or give us super potions or maybe roadmaps or investment plans, which promises us if we uh, take and eat or buy and do, we can feel good and we can live comfortably all the time. However, when we open our Bibles, we find that it teaches us that man as man has always looked for happiness in what is uncertain and unsatisfying and soon will be ending. And because man as man looks for happiness in what is uncertain and unsatisfying and soon will be ending, he remains confused and he remains unsatisfied, knowing that in his heart of hearts, he will inevitably be separated from those things having an ever-increasing craving for that which gives him increasingly diminishing returns, and all the while knowing that the dust of death will eventually settle on everything that is part and parcel of life on this little planet. And I suppose, but we can't know for sure, that a number of prayers that people pray have much to do with feeling good and living comfortably all the time. Therefore, I don't think it's too much of a stretch knowing my own evil heart to think that at this point in our history, at least in our situation, most think that it's a God-given right to feel good and to live comfortably all the time. But is it? Is it really a God-given right to feel good and live comfortably all the time in such a world like this? If you're a Christian, where the last words of Jesus before his glorious ascension was, remember, I want you to feel good and live comfortably all the time. Rabbi Zacharias, the noted Christian thinker and apologist, wrote in his book, Can Man Live Without God? Page 176 in chapter 16, he says this, I am absolutely convinced that meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain, 
Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. And that is why we find ourselves emptied of meaning with our pantries still full. So let's be very, very clear this evening. The difference between our man-made utopias and a God-made heaven is the cross of Jesus Christ. The former is fleeting. The latter is forever. And I say that not only because it's true, because I suspect much of the frustration one would have in life is due to the inclinations which one has in life to always cling to our rights. That should not have happened to me, he says. I deserve better than that, she says. Don't you know who I am? This is not right. There I am clinging to our rights. Now listen carefully. Human rights, the, the struggle to bring dignity and decency to people that um, exist in this world is a solid quest. In fact, the Bible gives a solid kind of right on for human rights. And I, for one, believe firmly in human rights for all peoples of all nations and all beliefs. But human rights of a different kind, they can be devious. In fact, it can be very dangerous. Anna Russell, a singer and a comedian from the other side of the Atlantic, in her tune, which she entitled Psychiatric Folk Song, Pin the Lines. At three, I had the feeling av of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally that I poisoned all my lovers. But now I am happy I have learned the lesson this has taught, that everything that I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. And loved ones, that is much the human condition. It can't be me. It's not me. Or maybe even more sinister, if I had complete control, if I had all my rights, then I would show everyone how it's done. And then off we go into that delusional, irrational, and, and unbiblical existence. So think of it this way. When you dangle a carrot in front of somebody, you're tempting them to reach out and grab it, aren't you? And, and the more valuable the carrot, the more sought after the carrot, the greater the desire to grab that carrot. So think, what is the ultimate carrot? Well, the ultimate carrot, I would guess, is being God, or at least a God, or having full, full power, full control, my rights unfolding as I like all the time. I mean, you dangle that in front of a human being and we'd get, hey... I'd like some of that. Or maybe, hey, it's about time. It's about time something like that happened for me. Total power. I shouldn't tell you this, but, but I am. A long time ago, living in, in central Texas, the, Saturday, or the Friday night before the Saturday, Saturday lottery drawing in Texas, the very first lottery they ever had, I wasn't old enough to buy lottery tickets, but I still had a crazy Friday night dream in which I won the lottery. It was fantastic. I have five brothers, two sisters, and a mom and dad. And in my dream, every one of them got a red Corvette. It was beautiful. And in every one of them, they got checks, big fat checks. I was passing out the money. And there I was in my dream, just, just in full control. Even my dad was coming up to me. Oh, son, I always knew. I always knew. And see, those kinds of sin becomes the basis of all our other sins. Why, why can't we be like God? Why can't I fix things the way I like it? Why can't I feel good and live comfortably all the time? What about my rights? Well, if you know your Bible, you remember what the serpent said to, the, to um, Adam and Eve. There was a fruit that God clearly said no for them to eat. And God had said, if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will die. Because you'll be disobeying God. 
And sin on so many levels brings death. But the serpent said, you will surely not die because God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You'll finally get the carrot. So don't let God decide for you. You be God and you decide for you. So that's the ultimate prize. That's the chance to be the ultimate boss. The one who calls all our own shots, writes our own ticket, writes out our own schedule. The one who is answerable to no one. The king. The chance to finally feel good and live comfortably all the time. Just like God. Just like God. But, and here's the question. Is that really, truly just like God? Is that really, truly God? Is that what God is like? Well, the best place to find out what God is like is from the Word of God, the Bible. And so what I want you to do is if you look at your Bible now, we're going to work under three headings in the verses that were read for us. And the first one is that we discover God is a lowly God. Because when you look at verse 6 and then you turn your eyes to Jesus Christ, who, and I'm reading verse 6 now, being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grafts. By the way, that's a very explicit statement that Jesus is God. However, the point is pretty straightforward. It's not so much the fact of Christ's equality with God. That is to be understood. But the fact of what Christ did with his equality with God. What Christ did with all his rights as God. You see, that's what's crucial here. And you see, you'll, you'll only come to this if you ask the question, okay, what rights are associated with being equal to God? If, if you were equal to God, like Jesus, what would be your rights? Well, just think, total allegiance, total power, total authority over the universe, and that's just at its most basic level. Those things are, are God by right. But what do you have here in these verses? What would the Holy Spirit have us know through the pen of Paul on the very night we're considering the birth of Jesus Christ? Well, in verse 6, you do not find Christ hyperventilating about his rights, do we? Verse 6, he did not consider equality with God, his right... Something to be grasped. The Greek word gives this idea to claim or seize or to exploit for himself. God wasn't prepared to say, do you know who I am and how long I've been around? See, that is not the way life is to be lived on this planet. In other words, instead of holding on to uninterrupted glory, his right, Jesus Christ chose to set it aside. And so what we find, and I think the most breathtaking and amazing way, is that t Christ takes what is best and greatest and most desirable about himself, and he will set aside freely in the interest of others. And loved ones, that's what's happening here. In other words, Christ did not stand on his rights. That's the essence of what's being said here. Christ did not stand on his rights. This is God doing God. This is God doing God. And it seems to me that God would be the best at doing God. And that's what verse 6 is telling us. So the very reason Christ did not stand on his rights is because he's God. That's God doing God. Again, verse 6. Because Jesus Christ is God, he did not stand on his rights. And loved ones, that is what God is like. That's how God does God. God is not a grabby, grasping, snooty, selfish God. He is a generous, giving, lowly, humble God. Verse 6, he sets himself aside. Timothy Keller on this says, Humility is so reserved, which is why God values self-control. I will lay my rights down. Which is why God values generosity. I will give my life up. 
and which is why God values humility. I will take on your punishment for your sins. That's our first point, a lowly God. Secondly, then, in verse 7, he's a nobody God. Verse 7, he made himself nothing, or literally, he emptied himself. Or if you have the King James Version, it reads, he made himself of no reputation. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that in coming to the world, Christ chose to arrive in such a way that people would not immediately say, oh, wow, that must be God. That must be God incarnate. So people were not saying at the birth of Jesus, yes, there he is, that is big enough, and that is bright enough, and that is magnificent enough, that must be God. I mean, if you know the Christmas story, so much of the Christmas story, it was done by stealth. Angels tell only a few, only a few stargazers uh, were in the know. Let me ask you a question, and be honest, you don't have to answer it out loud, but just answer it to yourself. How many times in our own pilgrimage have we said, yes, yes, this must be God? Because it was big, and it was bright, and it was powerful. But as time goes on, it wasn't God. But how many times have we said this cannot be God? Because it was small, and it was dim, and it hurt. And it was way too frail. But only later to discover that it was actually God. And if you doubt that, just look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what Christ does here is he makes himself of no reputation deliberately. He, he deliberately, to quote the Christian hymn, what child is this? He deliberately comes in such mean state. He deliberately chooses unpleasant circumstances. This is God doing God. This is God making himself nothing. Well, what is nothing? Verse 7, well, this is the beginning of nothing. The God child, our Lord Jesus Christ, chose to put himself in a feeding bucket in a manger for animals as he enters this world. Remember Luke's gospel that was read for us this evening? 2.12 says the angel to the shepherds, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothing. Okay, that's normal. We get that. But lying in a manger. See, that's not normal. A baby in a bucket is not normal. God in a feeding bucket. There's no chariot. There's no throne. There's no entourage. There's just Nothing. A baby wrapped in a towel in a bucket. That's God doing God. Now, that's incredible. I don't do life that way. I had to go home and rethink a lot about me these past two weeks. God incarnate is a baby in a bucket wrapped in a towel. But you know, there was another time when, when God incarnate was wrapped in a towel. Not as a baby, but as a man. It's John chapter 13, verse 2. Jesus was to show his followers the full extent of his love and going to the cross. This is what Jesus did. He said, poof, you'll feel good and live comfortably all the time. No. Listen to what he said. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and they had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So are you tracking with me? Wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, wrapped in a towel for us, and wiping his disciples' feet. That's God. That's love. Wiping his disciples' feet just moments away to die on a cross for our sin. And of course, being made in human likeness, he came into the world naked and being crucified 
to a cross, Jesus would leave this world naked. How does God do God? Well, he makes himself low, and he makes himself nothing. And he also takes on the very nature of a servant. That's God's plan to save the world. He demotes himself. Listen carefully. This is verse 7. He demotes himself not by subtraction, but by addition. By addition, by becoming human. Now, that's not flattering if you're human, but it's the truth. And you see, outside the entry of Christ into the world and then to the cross... There's absolutely no hope for the world. The incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection, the core of the gospel is the only hope for humanity and the only hope for death. Death, which is coming for all of us. Let me give you another quote from Rabbi Zacharias again. Jesus Christ continually contradicts us in the way we experience ourselves as alive. And compels us to radically redefine what we mean by life. He encountered us the way he encountered the disciples. Those who survived disciples were really dead. He, the dead one, was really the living. Which is why if you actually read your Bible, you'll find, especially in the New Testament, the Bible is big on explaining and exalting. And if you can believe us, it gives us the behind the scene looks of the very mind of Jesus Christ. That's what Philippians 2, 6 and 7 and 8 is doing. This is the very thought process of the Lord Jesus Christ before he comes into this world. Verse 5, this is the mind of Christ. This is what it means to have the mind of Christ. Verse 6, he is God and he makes the decision to lower himself. He removes his rights. He enslaves himself purposely, deliberately. He deliberately chooses the lowest of circumstances for his entry into the world. He lowers himself. He becomes a man, a servant, a slave. Now, we need to get to our final point, but, but I had a big question. Why a slave? God, why do you come as a servant? Well, as best as I could find out, as, the, as, as of the year 2010, in our world, there are more than 20 million people who are slaves. 20 million people that probably of all of us in the room, only the Lord Jesus Christ can completely identify. Because I don't think anyone actually truly knows what it's like to be a slave, like, like to have another person have complete control over us and to feel like nothing. So the nearest I came to this was a book written by a gentleman named Primo Levi. He was a survivor of the Holocaust in Auschwitz, and he wrote this book, If This Is a Man. And this is one of the quotes from the book. This is what it means to feel like nothing. The guards hear us speak in many languages which they do not understand and which seem to them as grotesque as animal noise. They see us reduced to ignoble slavery without hair, without honor, without names, beaten every day, more abject every day, and they never see our, in our eyes a light of rebellion or peace or faith or anything. They know us simply as thieves and untrustworthy, muddy, ragged, and starving and mistaken the effect for the cause. They judge us worthy of our humiliation. Who of them could tell one of our faces apart from another? The ultimate of being nothing, of being ignored, shoved around, abused, to be nothing more than an animal. No rights. It's no wonder he gave the the title to the book, If This Is a Man, because he was being treated as less than a man. But you see, our big question this evening is this, from Philippians 2, is this a God? 
Is this what God does? Is this our, is this our God? Is this the mindset that we are told to have? Number one, a lowly God. Number two, a nobody God. Finally, number three, a death row God. Verse eight, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Well, what is the ultimate human right? The ultimate human right is life. And Christ voluntarily sets his life aside. The murderers treat their life and the life of another with complete indifference. And they do horrible things, wretched things. And many say, why should they live? But notice what Jesus did. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death deliberately. In other words, Jesus gives up the ultimate human right, life, purposely. Now, he could have shut down the whole crucifixion. He said it in John's gospel. He told his listeners that he could call the angels and they could lay hold of this whole situation and put it into it. But Jesus chose death. He chose not to defend himself even when he had the chance. But you see, we need to take this just a little bit further because the die on a cross in the ancient wor world was not just a death fit for slaves or for non-Roman citizens. It was all that. But it was a death unfit for a man of God. It was a death unfit for God himself. Because in the Old Testament, to die on a cross, or as they say it, to die on a tree means that not only were you cut off from life, but you were cut off from God. You were cursed. So you see, Jesus not only gave up his right to life, but he gave up his right of love from his Father, the one that he loved more than anyone in the entire universe. So when the NIV says that Christ humbled himself, that is a complete understatement, isn't it? Christ utterly humiliated himself. He was both society's outcast and he was God's outcast on purpose. On purpose. So is that your God? Is that your God? There's a, there's a seminary in Pune, India. Union Biblical Seminary. And they have a statue just almost in the center of the campus. And from a distance, you look at the statue, it's totally religious. There's a wonderful-looking tall figure standing there, and he, he just looks the part. And as you get closer to the statue, you see another figure bowing down at the religious figure's feet. And so as you get closer, you know, any good Hindu, I suspect, or maybe even a Christian for that matter, would assume who they knew, who was the tall, distinguished gentleman, and who was the slave at the foot of that tall, religious, distinguished gentleman. And then you have to get right up to the statue and then you read the inscription and it says this, Jesus washing Peter's feet. You see, Jesus is the slave. Jesus is the servant at the feet of Peter. Is that your God? This Christmas Eve, is this the God that you worship? If not, why not? If so, do you realize why he has done all this? Because all these thoughts and actions and humiliations Christ put on comes down to two reasons. Number one, his father's plan to save us. And number two, our sin, which Jesus said would doom us. For you see, the pre-incarnate Christ steps into the world on this first Christmas night and he looked at himself and he looked at his heavenly father and he looked at us and for obedience sake, for God's sake, for sinner's sake, in other words, for our sake, he held nothing back. The cost was huge and he lowered himself 
and he became nothing, and he became a slave, and God died. And God died. But of course, as you read on, he's alive. And this God will return soon to judge the living and the dead. So are you ready for that? One final quote. This, this is from the book, The Cross He Bore. The firm control of Christ in which he controls every word and every deed which could lend to his freedom. And in the spirit of voluntary surrender, he met his enemies. Christ then takes the place of human sinners expo exposed to divine judgment and laid down his life as a sacrifice for them, entering fully into death, a death that was due humanity. And what does God do? Well, then look at your Bible, verse 9. Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place. And he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, loved ones, only the cross of Jesus Christ smacks against everything we think of as life so that we can be taken by the one who said is life himself. To this Christmas Eve 2014, Jesus Christ freely offers himself to all who know how much they need him. He turns no honest person away. Now, if you have a good memory, we started the night saying that all people are like grass. And like the flowers and grass, they're fading away. Life is fleeting. Death is coming for us all. But the word of the Lord, the resurrected Jesus Christ, lives forever. And you can live without him, and you can live with him. One is a place the Bible describes as heaven. The other is a place the Bible describes as hell. Think it out. This is your God. He has paid your debt. Will you take his gift? Merry Christmas. Let's bow together. And while we're praying, if the ushers would come forward. Well, God and Father, we, we thank you for this night. We pray in light of what we learned this evening that we would see you more clearly, love you more dearly, and follow you more nearly. May the secret work of the Spirit come upon all who heard this message so that all your purposes may be fulfilled. And if we need to this evening, may we all pray, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Amen.